Hi, everybody. I'm Lacey. Bailey. And I'm Drew. And we're sarcastic, so let's get sinister. What you wearing? What you wearing there, Bailey? Oh, I don't know. Uh, could it be our new merch shirt? Ooh. Wow, very, very good job, you guys. <laughs> it should be on infomercials. Oh, it keeps getting better. You're, you're throwing an R in there. You're trying to make them like mixing with Afros. Infomercials. In, info? Yeah, like, like information. Commercial. But it but it's always uh, whatever. There's very few afros in infomercials. Not the ones I watch. That's that's where the problem is. Is it a problem? I'm nervous. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Your shirt looks very sinister. Thank you. And I'm very sarcastic. Oh, you should listen to our podcast. Billy and the Bull. I should have gone into marketing. You guys grabbed your drinks the exact same time. <laughs> and from, like, the same side, too. That was great. <laughs> we didn't um, even practice. Another fun thing is, so I'm currently at the mountains. Um, and this has allowed us to have our first studio live audience. Woo! Make some noise. Oh. It sounds like so many of them. We have Julia. Julia, sound off. Oh my god. I'm gonna cut them out. No, don't cut them out. It's fun. <laughs> we, we have Penny. Uh, no. Jasmine. Um, and then four dogs. Uh, Ranger, Kovu, Akila, and Tilly. I'm cutting all this out. She's not. This thing. <laughs> don't cut out our audience. Do you have cue cards to tell them when to laugh and stuff? Uh, no, I don't. But I can also you know, like, can you like tell the dogs to settle down? They, no, they yes, they're actually really well behaved, so they will settle down. They're part of the audience. Don't listen to her; she's a hater. Lacey, I don't care for the bright light above. I'm your really head. sorry. It I... looks like you're going to heaven. Oh, <laughs> I don't know what to do about it. I know it's obnoxious, but to hide it, I have to put my face like in front of the camera. You just record in the dark. Yeah, I was gonna say turn it off. Did well, you remove your lobster bisque? You seem very cranky today. No, I did get my lobster bisque. Okay, you. Oh, <laughs> I like it. I look. Look how red my face looks. My face is always red though. So. Yeah, I was gonna. Uh... My default. So now that we're three minutes into this intro. Lacey, what are we learning about today? So, hold hold on. you guys. Okay. Lacey, do you have a candle burning? Yes. Oh, yeah. That's not just fire. It is fire, but it's, it's controlled. She's setting okay. the mood. I, I, it looks kind of like a strobe light effect behind you. It's freaky. Yeah, I forgot. It's called Cozy Cabin. From Yankee Candle? Or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not sponsored by Yankee Candle. Cut that out, then. Oh, well, we're definitely not now. Or if we keep talking about it, maybe they will sponsor us. We there you be. go. 
I have so many. All right, so who are we talking about? Okay. I'm going to tell you guys about the Lambeth Prisoner. No. I'm going to tell you guys about the Lambeth Poisoner, not the Prisoner. The Poisoner. Does he eventually become the Prisoner? Yes. And I I have a follow-up question. Too. Um, did we hear about this person in a previous episode? Yes. Oh, okay. yes, we did. Bailey. Casey gets really excited. <laughs> okay, if you're going to be talking to the audience, like, <laughs> ask your question. Um, it, he's a he's a man. Yes. Is well, aren't women like more likely to poison people? Typically, or? it's women are poisoners, but the Lambeth poisoner there's no doubt about who he is and he's a guy so, are you saying lambeth 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 yes like, it's like, a part of london it's an area in london like how white chapel's in london lambeth is in london did you mention this guy when you were talking about jack the ripper i sure did mm. i sure did um a little bit ago before we jumped on i shared with you guys um a slide deck that has just three pictures of him so you can pop in and take a look I'd like you to notice the lazy eye, because it really adds to his overall appearance. But it's subtle. Subtle. You wouldn't see it from a distance, but if he approached you in a bar, you'd be like, whoa, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Which eye is it, or should I just guess? Uh, It's his left, but it looks different in two of the pictures. I was going to say, it's the one that's looking more at his nose than the other one. Where did you share it? I just shared it. I hit share and then it shared. Check your email. Where'd you anyway, go? did you actually say Yahoo. what his name was? No, I didn't. I okay. have a whole intro prepared. Would you like to start it off? Yeah, you, you guys ready? ready? Yep. We are ready. Okay. Hold on, I want to split my screen so I can watch your faces while I talk to you. In 1887, a young woman named Flora Eliza Brooks contracted bronchitis in Quebec, Canada. She died in August of 1877 um, of what appeared to be consumption, but her doctor was suspicious. Isn't her doctor TB tuberculosis? Could be. I don't know. Is consumption the same as tuberculosis? I think consumption was just the name for it at the time. You want me to Google? Sure. Is someone else Googling? You've, like, interrupted my intro. I'm only one bullet point in. It is TV. Okay. But, remember, her doctor was suspicious. I've got the consumption. That's probably what she said, and that's why people thought that. Mm -hmm. In 1880, a young woman named Kate Gardner was found dead in an outhouse in Ontario with a bottle of chloroform next to her body. Official word was that she took her own life, but the police and the townspeople didn't really believe that. Where in was, 1880. Where was that one? That was Ontario. So, one wait. So, only, yeah, so. so, okay, so the official statement was suicide, but yeah. police and the town didn't. So, who was believing suicide? Nobody, oh. really. <laughs> this is just the intro. We're coming back to all these women. Everyone else thought it was suicide, but like you know, the police and the town <laughs> didn't. But literally, only one person thought it was suicide, and <laughs> he doesn't. Matter. Well, somebody presented the idea that it was suicide, and we just ran with it. 
Maybe. We'll see. In December of 1880, Ellen Stack died after taking medicine that was prescribed to her. The pharmacist that she bought the medicine from received threatening letters, threatening anonymous letters. He told the police, but nothing was done. In April of 1881, Alice Montgomery died in a rooming house. Her death was caused by strychnine poisoning, and the autopsy showed she had recently undergone an abortion. In 1881 also, yeah, 61-year-old Daniel Stott died after taking medicine that his wife had picked up for him. His death was believed to be the result of his epilepsy, but after the coroner and the district attorney received anonymous letters claiming that the chemists who made his medicine were responsible, his body was exhumed, and the cause of death was found to be strychnine poisoning. An arrest was made, but it wasn't the chemists. Ten years later, in 1891, Nellie Donworth went for a few drinks with a stranger in London. She died that night from strychnine poisoning. A couple days later, Matilda Clover went to bed, but first she took some pills she had been given that day. She died that night from what was at first assumed to be heart failure due to alcohol withdrawal, but was later found to be strychnine poisoning. In 1892, Louise Harvey was given two pills and told to take them immediately. She pretended to, but instead threw them in the river, and she lived to talk about that day. Um, can I make a comment? Yes. So you're telling me that I should never take medication. That's what I'm getting. Just don't do it. Yeah. Strychnine. All, in All the time. Yeah. Also in 1892, Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel spent the night in their flat with a man. Before he left, he gave them a can of tin salmon and three pills each. They both died that night from strychnine poisoning. Three pills what, what? do these people all have in common? They're they were murdered crazy. by the Lambeth Poisoner and maybe Jack the Ripper. I danced to dramatic hold music. On, hold my hold head. on, let me get the studio audience. This is where you guys go, ooh. Let me see, should I play fun music while you dance Something there? Something there. Dun, 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 dun. Play that kind of music. Phantom of the Opera? Maybe something different. Yeah. The studio audience is trying to make background noise for you. Nice. I like it. If they could be a little quicker with it next time, that would be good. Guys. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, you know, on cue. It's their first. Okay, we'll do it again. Ready? And maybe... We're going to do it again. Hold on, guys. Ready? Jack the Ripper. Perfect. I like this. Yeah. All right. Ready? We're going back in time to 1850. I'm going to tell you about a man named Thomas Neal Cream. I'm going to call him Thomas because calling him Cream the whole time feels weird. It even felt weird when I was typing it out. Thomas Neil Cream was born in Glasgow. Sorry, can I just request that you call him Neil since He's been Thomas in my head for quite a while now. Okay. (laughs) I'll call him Neil. No, actually don't because I'm Neil Patrick Harris. Call him Cream. No, no, no. Lambeth Poisoner. Call him him Dr. Cream. Call him. No, uh, no, he never actually got his medical license. Call him TNC. His middle name is Neil. Call Call him. him, Call call him Tommy Cream. Ooh, (laughs) sounds like a pimp name. (laughs) 
All right. Tom McCream was born in Glasgow, Scotland on May 27th, 1850. He was the oldest of eight kids. He's also a Gemini. Yeah. What, yep. what, what was his date? May 27th. Oh, he's Four years later, his family immigrated to Quebec. His dad, William, became the manager of a shipbuilding and lumber firm. Sorry, sorry, sorry. What? He's, what? I said he's a male Gemini? No, not you, Bailey. Oh. His dad became a what? The manager of a shipbuilding and lumber firm. Okay, what so I you? heard I heard shipbuilding and I had questions. It's the eighteen hundreds. There was stuff happening. A lot of manure. Yeah. Eventually William started his own wholesale lumber business, which did become very successful and he became wealthy from it. Um Tommy Cream, I can't do that. Thomas <laughs> apprenticed in the shipbuilding train and trade and he helped his father within his father open his own business however this was not his dream he didn't want to really go into this business so in 1872 when he was 22 years old he started studying medicine at montreal's mcgill university in those four years he developed quite a wild streak and had a reputation for being rather extravagant right this wealth that his father had they didn't have when he was little it was kind of new for him um very expensive clothes flashy jewelry he traveled everywhere via a very showy carriage um and was big with the ladies despite that lazy eye what's that uh what's a showy carriage look like you know not a plain old carriage lacy you're forgetting about his fabulous mustache Ooh. yeah that's i mean his whole image is he honestly looks like what i picture when i picture jack the ripper it's very he good always have the mustache though that's true which lazy what eye am i looking at for the lazy eye though late so- bailey look at his eyes which <laughs> one is looking more towards his nose oh his left that's his lazy eye <clears throat> continue oh. Despite his wild streak, he did graduate with honors on May 31st, 1876. The speech that was given to his graduating class was the evils of malpractice in the medical profession. Now, Tommy Cream wrote his thesis on the effects of chloroform, the properties and medical usefulness, usefulness of it. Now, I went on a little bit of a sidetrack here to learn about chloroform. Because I thought it would be fun. So chloroform. Something you shouldn't have googled. I'm pr- I'm probably on a list. It was discovered accidentally in 1831 when a physician named Samuel Guthrie mixed disinfectant with whiskey. Um, its anesthetic properties were recorded in 1847, and it was used for the first time that year as a general anesthesia during childbirth. So um, it was briefly popular in Europe. A lot of surgeons started switching to it, but then quickly switched back. Because they discovered chloroform was highly toxic. So they switched back to ether. Um, I also learned that it doesn't really work the way it's portrayed in movies. You can't sprinkle a couple drops on a handkerchief and hold it over somebody's nose. You need a lot more of it to really knock somebody out. John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer both used chloroform to drug their victims. Um, and I already said Thomas's thesis was on the properties and medical usefulness of chloroform. All right. Soon after he graduated. Bailey. Don't feel bad about Googling that, because um, the amount of, like, drugs and how to make them I've Googled, I'm on a list, too. It's fine. Ooh. What a list together. Mine's a little bit worse, because, <laughs> side note, we, methadone for, like, 
animal hospitals was on back order so i was like let's make our own um and then i went hold down this whole rabbit trail of how it's <laughs> synthetic but we could make morphine but yeah you're on a list for sure what's a rabbit trail what you said you went down a rabbit trail yeah it's the trail that leads to the rabbit hole it leads to the hole before you dive all the way into the hole, you're on the trail. Gotcha. She stopped awesome. before the hole. She sensed the danger she was in. Soon after graduating, Thomas began courting a young woman named Flora Eliza Brooks. Her father was a wealthy hotel owner in Waterloo, Quebec. A few months later, uh-oh, Flora's pregnant. Can't have that. So Thomas performed an abortion, which was illegal at the time, nearly killing her in the process. He performed an abortion on the person he's dating? Yes. He, n- neither one of them wanted the baby. And he said, don't worry, I just graduated medical school. Just want to be clear for everybody, he didn't have his, like, medical license yet. He just did the first round of schooling. Okay? So, like, not that it would make it better, but he's not Dr. Cream at this point. So, after this happens, Thomas takes off. But Flora's father finds out what happens, chased him down, drags him back, and forces him at gunpoint to marry Flora. That's what they call a shotgun wedding. Is that the is that <laughs> why we call it a shotgun wedding? That's why it's a shotgun wedding. Um so the next day Thomas took off for England. So they got married. The next day he left. They never saw each other again. He continued his medical studies there. So now while he was away alone. While he was away, Flora contracted bronchitis. And then eventually died in August of what appeared to be consumption. However, her doctor found out that when Thomas was informed Flora had bronchitis, he sent her medicine. And her doctor was very suspicious that foul play was involved. However, he never did anything about his suspicions. I am, I am also suspicious. You should be. So, over in London, Thomas had been studying at St. Thomas's Hospital, and then he went to the Royal Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons in Edinburgh. Um, so, he's getting more schooling, still not a doctor. He worked part-time while he was there as a clerk and spent his free time with as many women as he could. And in eight, May of 1878, so almost a year after Flora died, he returns to Canada. He heads on over to Ontario, where he opens a medical practice. He is charged with and pleads guilty to practicing without a license. That didn't stop him. He kept on trucking. And he had a good reputation as somebody you could get backstreet abortions from. So his business did not suffer because he was practicing without a license. About a year after he opened his practice, a young woman named Kate Gardner was found dead in an outhouse behind his office with a bottle of chloroform next to her body. It was discovered during the investigation she had been what we could call a frequent flyer at his office, receiving several abortions. Um, Thomas insisted he never gave her one, and that when he refused to, she threatened to take her own life. He said this must have been a suicide. Mm. There were big suspicions that it was not, but there was not enough evidence to do anything. And the coroner's jury, which they did like an inquest, determined that she had died from chloroform and then, quote, administered by some person's unknown, but there was not enough evidence to charge Thomas with anything. However, his reputation at this point was ruined. He had to leave his practice. He left for Chicago. In Chicago, he opened a medical practice in the West Side near the prostitution district. 
quickly developed a reputation among the police and the local prostitutes as a backstreet abortionist. In 1880, a young woman named Mary Ann Faulkner died on his operating table. Allegedly, she was receiving an abortion at the time. Thomas was investigated for her murder, but never ended up being charged with anything. Um, And it was a little bit confusing as to why, but there was rampant corruption among the police force at this time in Chicago. And it was hinted at a couple different places. That was why he also is still wealthy. He still has his family's wealth. Later in 1880, a woman named Ellen Stack died after she took medicine that he had prescribed her. In January, Thomas sent threatening letters to the pharmacist who had given Ellen the medicine, essentially saying, I know that you killed her, but if you pay me, I'll keep quiet about it. The pharmacist went to the police. They didn't do anything. April 1881. So this is all happening very quickly. You know, his wife died in 1888. No, that's not true. 78. So Flora died. Um, shoot, I had a whole list of them right in front of me. Florida I mean, told her his wife. I mean, she was. Briefly. <laughs> um, Flora, Kate Gardner, Marianne Faulkner, Ellen Stack. This is three people within two years. Um, April 1881. A hold woman on, named... Hold on, hold on. Yes. The, the first one, that was consumption. And the second one was clearly a suicide. So That's true. I don't know what where you're coming up with these three people in two years numbers. I am just making stuff up. Yeah, you're just trying to discredit him and make him look bad and make him lose his uh, practice again. It's a witch hunt. I don't know. Doctor Cream seems pretty like suspicious. Not a, he's, he's not a doctor. You called him Doctor Cream. I didn't mean to. I like he called, him, he called himself Dr. Cream. He was you know lying. What? Now I, I trust Dr. Cream. I don't. That makes me uncomfortable. In April of 1881, a young woman named Alice Montgomery died in a rooming house about one block from Thomas's office. She died from strychnine poisoning, and the autopsy showed she had recently received an abortion. This oh, one, I think, is one of the fun ones. Um, in the meantime... Thomas had been treating, he has like regular patients too. He's not killing every single person who comes to his office. And he had developed his own medicine to combat epilepsy. And his patients who had epilepsy really swore by it. So he was treating this 61-year-old man named Daniel Stott. However, he didn't usually go into the West Side to get the medicine himself. He sent his 33-year-old wife, Julia, into the city to pick up his pills. Good old Tommy started having an affair with Julia. And yeah, in 1881, he talks her into convincing her husband to take out life insurance. And then when he gives her her husband's pills, he fills them with strychnine. She was in on this. She was part of the plan. He took the pill that day, died within minutes. His death, the coroner believed he died from a seizure related to his epilepsy. However, this is goofy. Thomas sent the coroner an anonymous letter saying that the chemists who made Scott's prescription... Oh, no, no, this one wasn't anonymous. I'm sorry. He was himself in this letter. Sent the coroner a letter saying that the chemists who made Scott's prescription were responsible for his death, that they had killed him. Because his plan was to sue the chemists for damages on Julia's behalf. Um, so more money. The, 
yeah, the coroner ignored this letter. So Thomas went to the district attorney, who was curious enough to have Stott's body exhumed. They discovered enough strychnine in his stomach to kill three people. Surprise! Thomas was the one who was arrested. Um, I cannot believe he didn't expect this to backfire on him. I'm confused as to where their probable cause came in. Yeah, well, I mean, he was having an affair with Julia. Well, okay, so he was arrested and charged of second-degree murder. Julia was also arrested, but gave evidence against Thomas to avoid jail time. So she didn't do any jail time. Thomas did. Stott's tombstone was put up by his friends, and they put on the tombstone, Daniel Stott died June 12th, 1881, aged 61 years, poisoned by his wife and Dr. Cream. They put that Uh, on the tombstone? On the tombstone. I like that they wanted it to stay there so everybody knew who looked at it. Feels a little shady. Yeah. Uh, Like they were throwing a bit of shade. Yeah. So this was 1881, right? He was sentenced to life, but released in 1891. 10 years later life so hey, first yeah hold on though it, at that time period 10 years could be life i mean that uh, well he was originally sentenced to life it was later reduced to 17 years and then he got early parole and was released allegedly his brother bribed authorities and the governor commuted thomas's sentence early and that's how he got out early um, we will talk a little bit later, not in depth, but about, again, corruption among authorities and the police and prison officials and stuff. So that could be. Um, I'm muted to make a gross noise. So he got out of jail in Chicago. He served his time in Chicago in a penitentiary, popped up to Canada to pick up an inheritance because his dad had died while he was in jail and he was given a sizable inheritance. And then he headed back to London, England, and he got a room on Lambeth Palace Road in South London. So he got there to Lambeth on October 7th of 1891. Okay, so Lambeth is in South London. It was nearly as bad as Whitechapel, where Jack the Ripper just slashed Mm -hmm. his way through town. Almost that bad. Um, It was described as the most lurid and beastly of the prostitution areas. And there was an area around Waterloo Station that was nicknamed Porterloo. Uh, yeah, I like. I see what they did there. Yeah. Um, at this point, Thomas is addicted to drugs. He does not try to hide it. He's very comfortable with it. He's constantly taking pills that he puts together. He said they contained cocaine, morphine, and strychnine. Now, strychnine can be used in small doses as a stimulant. Um, he said that these pills relieved his headaches and, bonus, were an aphrodisiac. <laughs> Thomas frequented a restaurant called Gaddy's Adelaide Gallery Restaurant. He became a regular, and he made friends with other regulars. Friends, I'm using kind of loosely. People were weirded out by him. Um, he carried around pornographic pictures that he liked to show off to people he knew and people he didn't. He was described as very fidgety and said he could never hold still. Even if he was sitting at the bar, he was constantly moving and always had to be chewing something, whether it was um, tobacco, gum, a cigar, always had to be chewing. He liked talking about money. He liked talking about poison, but he mostly liked talking about women and not in a very positive way. His left eye turned in slightly, giving him a crazed look. 
And he actually told people that was why he came to London, because he wanted to see a specialist because of his eye. And he did actually see an optician who determined that he had needed glasses. He was farsighted and he'd needed glasses probably for most of his life. And because he never got them and his eye just kept trying to overcompensate, it eventually literally like shifted a little bit. Um, that's just a fun side fact for him. So it was very easy in Lambeth for Thomas to get his hands on narcotics and whatever poison he wanted. He went to a chemist shop and he said he was an American doctor taking courses at St. Thomas's Hospital. Now the clerk, John Kirkby, couldn't find his name in the shop's physician register. And what they're supposed to do is if your name isn't on the register, then they need to be contacted by somebody who is vouching for you. However, he trusted Thomas. And he filled his many orders for opium and strychnine. He even helped him track down a supplier who could get him empty capsules of a particular size that he was after. He never asked him what he needed those capsules for. October 13th of 1891. So he moved to Lambeth on October 7th. Okay. October 13th, he meets Nellie Donworth, who is a 19-year-old prostitute. And he asks her to go out for some drinks with him. She does. And she dies that night from what is later determined to be strychnine poisoning. October 20th, seven days later, he meets 27-year-old prostitute Matilda Clover. He, give her, he gives her some pills, and he tells her to take them before she goes to bed that night. She does. She dies. At first, it was assumed to be heart failure due to withdrawal. It would take a little while for them to figure this one out. Um, he popped back over to Canada briefly to visit family, came back over to London, April 2nd of 1892, he met Lou Harvey, Louise, who went by Lou, um, who was a prostitute. He offered her two pills, and when she went to pocket them, he demanded that she take them immediately. She thought that was suspicious, so she pretended to take them and then threw them off the bridge into the river. She would later testify. On April 11th, Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel, 21 and 18 years old, spent the night in their flat with Thomas. Before he left, in the middle of the night, he gave them a can of tinned salmon and three pills each. They died from strychnine poisoning. Okay. So, you might be wondering, how was he caught? It seems like he could just get away with anything. Yeah, he probably could have. But he did some stupid shit. So. <clears throat> Sorry, I just, I appreciate you answering your own question. <laughs> I want to make sure I got the right answer. Yeah makes it easier for me to just like know what's happening barely be present oh, oh. questions so okay we'll save that for the end because you might okay. answer them. after he killed nelly donworth we've seen before he likes to write letters this does feel a little jack the rippery although we know that the letters probably weren't actually <laughs> written by him but this guy for sure is writing these letters yeah, after he killed nelly hmm? sorry i was just like i don't think this is jack the ripper jack the ripper wasn't poisoning people yeah, I, I'm going to give you a couple reasons why I don't think it is either. That was one of my, like, questions and statements, too. I, I don't think that... Because when was Jack the Ripper? Like, late 1890s? 1888 was the main year. So like, he got weird. there three years after they stopped. It's just weird that if we're considering him, he would go from literally slicing women almost completely open. Mm. Or completely open to just poisoning yeah, yeah. i i think that we can safely say that they are two different people i agree with yeah, you anyway um so after he killed nelly donworth the first woman he killed in london 
he used pseudonym Allegedly. A. Yes. Well, he, yes. Um, he used the pseudonym A. O'Brien. He wrote to the coroner and said he knew who the murderer was and he would give up the name for 300,000 pounds. Coroner pretty much ignored it. A lot of these people, like, ignored these letters or went to the police and were like, I got this, but I'm not, like, worried about it. Um, he also wrote to William Frederick Dainsworth Smith saying that he had incriminating evidence against him and wanted to be paid for his silence. This was the thing he did. He would write somebody and be like, I know you killed this person and I have evidence. So pay me and I won't tell anybody. Why Which I think is so just a wild money? gamble. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think he really wanted attention for it. I don't know. Oh. Um, after he, he killed Matilda Clover, he used the pseudonym M. Malone and he wrote to physician William Broadbent saying he had evidence that Broadbent was involved in Matilda's death, and he wanted $25,000 to keep quiet. Now, Broadbent took this to Scotland Yard, and they actually set a trap to catch whoever came to get the money, but nobody came. Either that or they didn't, you know, somebody came and realized what was happening and left. They didn't catch anybody. He also told his neighbor, Joseph Harper, he had incriminating evidence against him. So he just approached him and was like, hey, I know that, because at this point, the term Lambeth Poisoner is being used in the press. He's like, hey, I know that you're the Lambeth Poisoner. I got some evidence. Give me 1,500 pounds. Was he? Um, and Joseph Harper was just like, no, I won't. And he gave up on that one pretty quickly. I like that he wanted 300,000 pounds from the one guy and 1,500 from this guy. What did you say, Valley? Was he, like, short on money? Like, is that why he's... He shouldn't have been. I'm a little unsure because he got this inheritance from his dad which was supposed to be significant but the room he was staying in in lambeth first of all lambeth was a super shitty area and he was staying in a really crappy little room so i don't know if that was like to save money he was slumming it he didn't care he was also described as still dressing very well up until he was caught so i don't really know how much money is he spending on like the drugs and alcohol yeah um but i also think that he could be one of those people who has a lot of money, but still just, like, wants more money. Yeah, that's the sense I'm getting, because yeah. I, I feel like he's probably holed up where his victims hang. Mm. Right, he has easy access um, to all the prostitutes who are living here in Lambeth. Mm-hmm. So, some of these people, there were other letters he wrote, too, but I like those the best. Some of these people had gone to the police, and the police started realizing that these different letters were written by the same person. And then they realized he mentioned Matilda Clover's death. Now, the police thought Matilda died from heart failure because of alcohol withdrawal. So, when they saw her death being mentioned in these... They had her body exhumed and discovered she had died from strychnine poisoning and realized that these letters were actually coming from the Lambeth poisoner, not just some asshole who was like, I think I can make money off of this. Kudos to the police for actually, like, putting some stuff together. Yeah, I feel like they're taking the initiative. Yeah, they did much better with this than they did with Jack the Ripper. Plus, Jack the Ripper is still fresh in people's minds. That was still a terror that ran through London just a couple years before. So... At the time, people were even saying, is Jack the Ripper back? Because it was, you know, another serial killer coming through and it was just freaking everybody out. Um, This is, so, I, he doesn't seem stupid, but then he does so much stupid shit. He bragged to his friends 
about his knowledge of the killings, like all this stuff that he knew that he shouldn't have known. He met a guy named John Haynes, a New York City detective who was visiting London and had heard about the Lambeth Poisoner. And Thomas said, hey, I can take you on a little bit of a murder tour. And he took him on a tour of where the victims lived and, like, told him about them and how they died. So that cop mentioned it to a British cop who found it suspicious that this gentleman knew so much about these murders. The police started keeping an eye on Thomas at this point, and they looked into his past. They looked, reached out to Canada, Chicago. They found out about the trail of bodies behind him, the thing, the murder he was convicted of. In 1892, he was arrested for the murder of the four women in London, the attempted murder of Lou Harvey, and attempted extortion. So he was never actually arrested or charged with the deaths in Chicago or Canada, other than Daniel Stock. So his trial lasted from October 17th to the 21st in 1892. It was held at the Old Bailey, which is London's central criminal court. The jury deliberated. The Old Bailey. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, do you guys want to guess how long the jury deliberated for? Is 20 it, minutes. Is it days or hours? Neither. 20 minutes. Drew says 20 minutes. 45 minutes. 12 minutes. I win. <laughs> wow. Guilty verdict. And he was sentenced to hanging. The Justice Henry Hawkins said to Thomas that his crimes could be expiated only by your death. I had to look up the word expiated. That was my new word for the week. It means, like, atoned for. Mm, you're an English yeah. teacher. Yeah, and I got a new word. I like it. Does it mean that she knows um, every English word? Yeah, there are so many words. While in jail, awaiting his hanging, he admitted to jailers that he deserved his fate and said he had killed many women other than the ones he was being charged with. That could be true. It could be him after attention because he was that kind of guy. His execution took place on November 15th, 1892 in Newgate Prison. Now, public hangings had ended in 1868, so people can't just gather to watch it. However, thousands of people gathered outside the gate. It was the largest crowd at an execution since public executions ended. The next day, the Toronto Globe reported... Probably no criminal was ever executed in London who had a less pitying mob awaiting his execution. Cream was reportedly very quiet and composed as he was led to the noose. And he allegedly said, I am Jack, right before he was dropped through the trapdoor, snapping his neck. So he's was Thomas Neil Cream Jack the Ripper? Probably no. not. He was, however, a cold-blooded killer. So let's just talk real briefly, because we have a whole episode on Jack the Ripper, but I just have a couple, like, bullets here. So, during the time Jack the Ripper was slashing people up, our guy was in jail in Illinois. However, a Montreal writer named Donald Bell published two articles in the 1970s that maintained it could indeed have been Thomas. This is how. In the 1880s, this penitentiary, Chicago in particular, including this penitentiary, was full of corruption. Absolutely full of corruption and people bribing their way out of stuff. In 1887, Thomas's father died and left him a large inheritance. This writer claims Thomas could have used some of this inheritance to bribe his jailers into releasing him early and keeping it quiet, just not documenting it. Um, They also said that his past as a backstreet abortionist could be seen as similar to the way the Ripper 
butchered his victims. I disagree. I think if he had that in him to rip people up the way the Ripper did, he would not have been able to perform so many abortions that were actually successful and not just kill all these women. I don't think he would have had that control. But that's me. Then this gentleman, Derek Davies, who's a British graphologist, so the stud- he studies handwriting, he compared samples of Thomas's handwriting to one of the proven Jack the Ripper hoax letters and what he says is one of the real Ripper letters. And he found similarities between them. My first issue with this is that none of the letters have been proven to be real. Most of them have been debunked. So I don't even like that, but whatever. He said there were similarities between all three. He wrote an article saying Thomas wrote the letters and attempted to disguise himself when he did it. Then we have that final sentence where he said, I am Jack, and then was cut off as he dropped through the trap door. Now, he may have just wanted the notoriety of it. He was labeled as an egomaniac. He wanted the spotlight. He could have just wanted to take credit for something like that. However, he probably never even said it. The only person who said they heard it was the executioner, James Billington. But there were three or four other people in the room, officials, Nobody else heard it. They all insisted after the fact that they hadn't heard him say anything. So it's widely believed the executioner made that up for attention. But wouldn't the executioner be, like, the closest person to him? Yeah, and that's what people's argument is. If he didn't say it loudly, the executioner is right there. So maybe he did. He Maybe he did. I think if he did, it was because he wanted people to think he was. Yeah, I... <laughs> he was... There's just no way that he would go from, like, it's just, it's so far off, like, to slicing someone over. And we saw with the Ripper victims the escalation until that last one, which was, like, so horrific. And then to escalate like that and then go all the way back to poisoning? Nah, I don't think so. Um, They never really found any reason for his anything in his background, his upbringing. Um, the Chicago Daily Tribune wrote an article and they said that he murdered simply for the sake of murder. And that seems to be the the going theory. He just liked it. And that's why he did it. That was my other comment I was going to make is that it's it's very horrifying when we come across killers that like, one, don't care to like, watch the death. Mm-hmm. Because he's poisoning people and just letting them like go home and it's like knowing that they're going to die. Um, and two, just, like, he doesn't seem like he has, like, a reason for the people he chooses. Yeah. Like, he's um, just killing random people or setting people yeah. with poison. And the stricting poisoning is painful as well. It's not a quick, it's not a slip away in your sleep. It's a painful death. So I read one thing that talked about, talking about how he didn't seem to have a reason, but he may have liked the idea of his victims suffering, even though he couldn't be there to see it. And yeah, I think it's a little extra scary when it's somebody who doesn't have a reason. They just want to kill people. Yeah. We do see for one or two money, like Daniel Stott, he was hoping to get like life insurance through Julia and stuff. But all the women just seem to be he wanted to, so he did. Yeah. Yeah. But that's all I've got on uh the Lambeth Poisoner. But then like and also like if you wanted like notoriety, like wouldn't you think he would go he would choose his method like something more like i don't know like nuts because like so many of his murders were like 
like, oh, they died from blah, blah, blah. They died from Berkeley. Yeah, they didn't even know. I mean, I... Others, it was, like, I think, except for, yeah. I think it was a smart way to do it because he got 10 in like, well, there ended up being a 10 year stretch where he was in jail, but in a very short amount of time, as far as like the space between them, except for the jail time, he killed 10 people fairly quickly. Um, and some of that was that he should have been caught in Chicago mm-hmm. before he was, and he managed to slip through the cracks. Um, but then the fact that he like wrote all those letters and like bragged to people and stuff when he was really getting away with it. Well, I feel like the letters, like, they were during, like, his, uh, like, drug sides. Like, That's true. He was on drugs at that point, too. He wasn't, like, fully thinking. And, I mean, what drugs was he mixing again? Um, according to him, cocaine, strychnine, and morphine. Yeah, I mean, who knows what the fuck he was thinking. (laughs) Yeah. Thoughts, Drew? Well, he's not Jack the Ripper. I feel 100% confident in that. Um, Did you go into any kind of, like, personal relationship that he had? Um, Other than his wife? No, he, he... I don't know if dated is the right word. He was a ladies man for the time he like went through women very quickly he did use prostitutes a lot when he was in lambeth um but before that and he in chicago as well but before he i don't know they didn't date what was the word he like courted a lot of women i guess yeah and there was nothing as far as like a weird relationship with his mom or his mom being abusive or anything like that i think he's jealous of Of the prostitutes I don't know. I <laughs> the babies. I don't know. What? I was gonna say he's jealous that like. Never mind. It's no, no, doesn't no, make no. any sense because he had a baby Follow that he helped get rid of. Okay. <laughs> well, well. Interesting. Yeah. Any other any other thoughts before we wrap it up? He's not Jack the Ripper. Cool. Well, that was sarcastic. No, that no. was sinister. You dumb. Look- Listen, I'm looking at Drew, and Drew looks so tired, she's making me tired. That was sinister. And we were sarcastic. Drew, stop making that face. <laughs> and we hope you keep listening. <laughs> Good work, guys.